Welcome to an episode of Explain Blockchain. This podcast is about blockchain technologies and its latest developments. My name is Peter and let's roll the intro. Alright everyone and welcome to this very first real episode of Explain Blockchain. I am Peter and this first episode is about the blockchain in general. I will take the Bitcoin blockchain as a reference here because it's quote unquote the original blockchain and there's a really good book written about it that I read by, um, it was written by Andreas Antonopoulos, one of the all-time heroes in the uh, blockchain ecosystem and I think the, the biggest teacher and educator or the best, the greatest educator there is in this ecosystem. So if you don't know Andreas Antonopoulos yet, uh, check him out on Twitter uh, or he also has his own website. And the book I'm talking about is called Mastering Bitcoin. So if you really want to dive more into the details of what I will tell you now, uh, then just get the book. It's also free available on GitHub or you can buy a, a copy of it and support the author with that as well. So let's get started. What is blockchain? I got my own definition here. It's unofficial as all definitions of blockchains are, but it is blockchain is a distributed append-only ledger that is governed by a consensus protocol in a peer-to-peer -peer network. So that's quite a mouthful, but let's just go through it step by step. First of all, for non-native English speakers, what is a ledger? A ledger used to be or still is a book in which you, you write all the transactions of, for example, transactions between people, or you can also write in the depth of people. So in simple terms, it is a book in which you write the transactions, which could be Alice paid 10 euros to Bob. And then the next one is Bob paid five euros to Alice. So then once you write down all these transactions and you sum them up, you can see how much money Alice paid and how much money Bob received. And that's basically a ledger. Very simple, but if you don't know the term and in the ecosystem, everybody uh, talks about hyperledger and distributed ledger and whatever, then it's, I don't know, it's very hard to understand. Blockchain is distributed. So that means it is not a centralized service. There's no one single copy or a replication of copies localized at a single central entity. This is different from, for example, uh, banks that hold one replicated version of the ledger of the balances of all the customers on their own service. So it's distributed in such a way that everybody who participates in the blockchain network has a copy of the blockchain. So to sum it up, it is not a centralized service. It is a distributed service. That means that there are multiple copies replicated or put on many different independent servers or computers. Next is blockchain is append only. That means that the history, the transactions and the blocks of a blockchain are not modifiable and you also cannot delete them anymore. So after you add something to it, it's also called immutable. You cannot mutate, you cannot change it anymore. And append only means you can only add to it. So you can change the state of something, you can change the information you have previously put on the blockchain, but you can only do that by adding an update to it. You cannot change the entry you had before. And that is actually one of the main value propositions or key features of blockchain and why they're so important to a lot of people. Because previously it was very hard to make something append only. 
Previously, you would only have a database and you can restrict access to it and you can strict the permissions of updating or deleting something. But you would always have somebody with a God mode, like an admin mode that could just go in there and change information that was previously put on it. And that's also why the blockchain, for example, is used in um, a South American country to register land property. Because previously they had the problem that some people powerful people in the country tended to just change the property, uh, the, the, the land property in the ledger. So they said, well, I would like to have this piece of land as well. And they just asked somebody or they did it themselves to change the name of the owner of the property in the database to their own name. So out of a sudden they owned that land. And this would, would not be possible anymore if you use the blockchain for these kind of use cases because once the information is on the blockchain it cannot be changed anymore and since nobody in the blockchain network has the god mode anymore the admin mode that has access or permissions to change or delete previously stored information it becomes a trustless system because before that you had to trust this admin you had to trust your bank you had to trust your people administering the the land property ledger to not change that information anymore but now since it is not possible anymore you don't have to trust them anymore and that makes the blockchain network in very roughly terms a trustless system but i will talk more about this trustlessness once i talk about consensus protocols in a minute and then the second to last concept i would like to explain is the consensus protocol that governs the blockchain now the consensus protocol depends on which blockchain you use. So in the Bitcoin blockchain, you have the proof of work consensus protocol. I will in the future create a whole own episode about different consensus protocols because there are now more than a handful. But in general, consensus protocols try to elect a leader that is allowed to add the next block to the blockchain. And this leader election has three requirements with almost all consensus protocols. The first one is fairness. So each participant of the network should have the same chance of being selected as a leader. So there's not a central leader that gets elected like most of the time or all the time, but the election is distributed over all participants. And that ensures that no single participant can always or has always the permission to add to the blockchain. So not, no single participant has the God mode, the admin mode that can choose which transactions, which information is put on the blockchain. And then the second requirement is investment. It's basically the more you invest in the network or in this election process, the, the higher your chances to also be elected as a leader. So with the proof of work consensus protocol, it's basically minor. If you invest more in computing power, then your chances of being elected leader and that you can uh, add the next block to the blockchain is also proportionally higher. And that creates an incentive for people to invest into this election process because they can pretty much calculate how much their will reward will be. And they will most certainly or they will guaranteed, almost guaranteed, get a reward out of it. And that creates market forces. So not only the people who feel morally obliged to keep the blockchain secure invest in this computational power, but there are actually economical forces behind that say, if you invest X amount of money into, for example, computational power into miners, then you will also get X amount of money back. 
And then the third requirement of a consensus protocol is verification. And the verification means that every single participant in the network should be able or are able to easily verify that a leader was elected legitimately. So for example, with the proof of work um, consensus protocol, the miners try to create hashes. Like they take the data of the uh, block and then they hash it and they tr see whether the hash um, applies to a certain level of difficulty. I will talk about the details in another episode. But basically they create a hash and then if the hash matches a certain criteria, they can say I created the correct hash and they are elected the next leader. Now, this creating of this hash, of this particular hash, is very computationally costly. So they have to invest a lot of in computational power, they have to hash a lot, and it takes time. It, takes, it should take around 10 minutes to find that correct hash. But once this hash is actually broadcasted to the network, every single one who receives that broadcast can, with a single hash, it, it takes almost no time and no energy and nothing, can verify that the leader was elected legitimately. That means that the leader created a correct hash that matches the criteria that are used to elect the next leader. So with a single hash you can verify, but it needs a lot of hashes to become a leader. That is the idea. So to sum it up, the consensus protocol ensures that no single party, no central authority holds the power or the permissions to add blocks to the blockchain. But this permission should be distributed over all the participants in the network. So this is a consensus protocol in rough and simple terms. I will also about this, as I said, create another episode in the future where I will explain the concepts and the details better. And then the last concept that I wanted to, that is part of my definition of blockchain is the peer-to-peer -peer network. And that is very easy to explain. It is also, again, not a centralized service. So you don't have a central server that holds a copy of the whole blockchain, but it is a direct connection between servers or computers. Uh, it is already, this technology is not too new. It's already uh, used a lot in, for example, torrents in BitTorrents and like the whole torrent download protocol because in this also computers directly talk to each other and there's no mediator in between there's no central service in between and this also is important for the blockchain network because if you again would have a central service then that central service that gives you a part or the, the copy of the blockchain can control that copy of the blockchain but since it's a peer-to-peer -peer network, you can connect to eight different peers, eight different independent servers, get a copy from each of them, and then verify that you get a copy that the majority of the servers sends you. And if there might be one or two servers that send you a different copy of the blockchain, then you just disregard that because you have six other versions. So that's also important that if you download the blockchain, that it is the copy that the majority of the network peers holds. But when you download the copy of the blockchain from the peers you're connected to, then you always check the integrity of the copy you receive. So you receive a copy and then you check using the consensus protocol whether the other blocks that you received were legitimately added to the blockchain. And um, how you can check that, I will explain in a minute. But first of all, let's sum up the, the last section. So the blockchain is a ledger that is distributed. It is append-only. It is governed by a consensus protocol and everything happens in a peer-to-peer -peer network.
So now that we have a general definition of the blockchain, let's talk a little bit more about the atomic building blocks of a blockchain. And those are transactions. So on the Bitcoin blockchain, a transaction is, as you would expect, a transaction of Bitcoin between two parties. And on the Bitcoin blockchain, a transaction is a normal data structure and that is formatted in JSON. And this data structure has some inputs and some outputs. As an input, a transaction has to have another transaction that was not yet spent. It's also called a UTXO. It's an unspent trans transaction output. And uh, this is actually the first interesting feature about Bitcoin blockchain or Bitcoin transactions. Because it is not actually about the Bitcoins you hold, but it's about the transactions, the unspent transactions you still have. Because in, in the real world, Alice would give Bob, let's say, $5 or 5 euro as a bill. And then if Bob can show a 5 euro bill, everybody knows that Bob owns 5 euro. But in the Bitcoin ecosystem, it doesn't work that way because Bitcoins could be copy-pasted, Bitcoins could be duplicated, and that brings the uh, double-spend problem uh, again. So in the Bitcoin blockchain, actually, it's not about the Bitcoins, but it's about the transactions. Because if I can show that, or if Bob can show that Alice paid him five Bitcoin and he has a valid transaction showing that, then everybody can verify, okay, Bob has at least five Bitcoin that he hasn't spent yet. So he owns at least five Bitcoin. And now this transaction can be used to make other transactions. This unspent transaction, as I said, will be an input for another transaction. And that other transaction then has an output value or output addresses. And that is obviously the address of, for example, Carol, to which Bob wants to send two Bitcoin. But then also next to Carol's address, Bob will put his own address into an, as an output in, to which he sends the difference between what he wants to spend and what he owns. So he basically sends back the three Bitcoin he hasn't spent yet to his own address. And this is always uh, important because in such a way, Bob creates another transaction that was not yet spent and that he then can use in the future to make other transactions to other people. If he wouldn't do that, he would lose the difference between what he owns and what he wants to spend to Carol because the transaction coming from Alice is used up, it's spent. So he can't use reuse that transactions anymore. And this way, by sending back money to his own address, he actually creates a new transaction that he can use in the future. But now the question is, how can we ensure, how does the blockchain ensure that only Bob is able to use that transaction for future transactions? And this is all ensured by a little script that is called a locking or witness script. And this little script is actually a very small programming language or a very small programming script written in a language that is called script. And script is a very easy language. It is a stack based or stack based language. If you don't know what a stack is, I would recommend looking that up. Uh, it's a computer science term, um, but never mind. Uh, it's non-Turing complete. The script language is non-Turing complete. That means that there are no loops and no adv uh, additional advanced conditions or condition flows in it, like switch statements. And uh, it's very, it's, it is actually a design choice that this language is so easy or, or has very limited capabilities because uh, it is a script that is sent with every transaction. So it needs to be executed very quickly and it needs to be super secure. So there can't be any infinite loops in it or logic bombs, 
quote unquote. Otherwise, you could, if, if anybody would create a, a transaction that holds a script that, for example, has an infinite loop in it, then every single node on the blockchain network that would get this transaction would execute the script and then would just be stuck infinitively. So the whole network would be down. So that's why the script language is a very limited language in order to be very secure. But let's come back to the locking script. So when Bob actually sends two Bitcoin to Carol, for example, he also sends three Bitcoin back to his own address. And on this transaction, he, he adds the locking script. And the locking script is uh, the second part of a full script that would return true. <laughs> That's actually what it, what it needs to do. But it's, um, it's, uh, it's part of a script that ensures that only Bob himself can solve and because only Bob himself can solve it he's also the only person that is able to reuse that output uh, for another transaction in the future. But what does it actually mean to solve a locking script? So the locking script actually only holds a couple of commands that Bob puts in there. Those commands are almost always the same and they follow a, a format which is called a pay to public key hash script. That is the most used script on the Bitcoin blockchain. And in order to solve the script, you actually have to hand in as an input to that script, the public key of Bob. And Bob also has to sign the transaction with his private key. And what that means is that he hashes the whole transaction and then he encrypts it with his private key. And that is how he signs something. So now that he encrypted it with his private key, we can decrypt it with his public key, which is known to everybody. And then eventually we can take the output of this decryption and compare it to the hash of the transaction we create ourselves. And if these two things match, then we know that Bob, who put the locking script in the output also has the matching input parameters and is therefore allowed to reuse that transaction in the future. <laughs> that was all a little bit difficult now but uh, I would recommend that if you want to look further into this in these very technical details that you uh, buy the Mastering Bitcoin yourself and just read through it and Andreas Antonopoulos and all the collaborators on GitHub explain it in some, so much detail and really well, better than I can ever explain now in uh, these short minutes. But that's in simple terms the whole idea behind the security of transactions. So whenever you create a transaction and you set the outputs, you also put a locking script that only the person who should receive these bitcoins can unlock. And if only that person can unlock it, then they are also the only people who can uh, use that output transaction as another input transactions for future transactions. Those are a lot of transactions. But in general, this helps. So if a person makes a transaction and adds these input parameters to it and then broadcasts that these, uh, this transaction to all the nodes in the network, every single node can just use the input parameters, add it to the locking script that was put in into the uh, output and then see whether the script returns true. And if this is the case, this transaction is legit and can be verified. And then these nodes will also use this verified transaction and try to put it in a block. Which brings us to the second part of this episode, blocks. So when Bob creates a transaction, he broadcasts this transaction to the network. 
And in the network, there are some nodes that are called miners. And these nodes actively listen for these transactions, take a bunch of these transactions and put them into blocks. And these initial blocks are called candidate blocks. A block has a structure that is divided into the header and, to, and the body of a block. So the body holds all the transactions that should go into this block. And the header contains some information about the body of the block. So the header contains, for example, the version of the software that the node is running, of the Bitcoin Core software. It contains a timestamp and it contains a Merkle root. Uh, the Merkle root is an interesting, or it's a, a tree of hashes that later on ensures the integrity of a block. So let's say we have eight transactions that should go into a certain block. We take the hash of each transaction, so we have eight hashes. Then we group these hashes all into groups of two. So we have eight hashes and then four groups of two hashes. And now that we have four groups, of two hashes each, we take these two hashes per group and hash them again. So from eight hashes, we eventually get only four hashes. And then we group these four hashes into groups of two. So we have two groups of two. We hash each group together. We only get two hashes. And eventually we also hash these two hashes and we get the Merkle root, which is the root hash. Now, this is important because it could be that a block is created and it's added to the blockchain but we have to but then somebody decides to just pick out a transaction that was previously made and add another one to it so the merkle root ensures the integrity of a block so that later on no transaction is replaced by another transaction because that would actually change the whole tree and eventually also the merkle root and it would be by the consensus protocol not be accepted anymore it couldn't be verified so that ensures that blocks that are already added to the blockchain are not modified anymore now the block also contains the hash of the block header of the previous block as well in the header and that creates the link between uh, blocks so that actually creates the chain of blocks because each following block contains the a hash of the block header of the previous block. And if you change one of the previous blocks, the whole hash changes. And then also you have to change every block after that block. So actually you have to recreate the last X blocks if you want to change X plus one block. And that also ensures the integrity of the blockchain itself. And that actually makes it uh, immutable and append only. All right, so this was already a very lot of information for one single episode, I think. And I think I will just cut the episode here and then create another episode about consensus protocols in their entirety. And uh, we'll also explain how you add blocks to the blockchain and how this whole blockchain increases and so on. So I really hope that you like this very first episode. Um, I try to Make it first a little bit abstract so that you get a glimpse of the whole thing and then go into technical depth. But if you don't like this or if you have any questions, comments, remarks or criticism, I would really appreciate if you would preferably send me a tweet on Twitter. My personal handle is pjulrich, U-L-L-R-I-C-H. Or you can also tweet to the handle of the show, which is at explainchain on Twitter. 
I also have a website. It's called explainblockchain.io. You can head over there. I'm still in the process of creating this website, but in the future, you will find more information on that website. But until then, I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope that I will see you in the next episode about consensus protocols. See you then.